Hello, this is Joan DeMartin, and welcome to Crime and Punishment, Why the Poor Stay Poor in America. The title of tonight's post is Critical Thinking and the Part It Plays in Making Positive Change. Critical thinking is a term thrown around so much it has become almost meaningless. It is embedded deep into the Common Core state standards for public schools across the nation, which set standards for English and math. And it is discussed in countless articles by educators and for educators that attempt to evaluate and then decide how our students learn. Despite this talk, however, it also is estimated that only one in 10 instructors actually teach critical thinking skills in the United States. A Forbes article written at the beginning of the COVID shutdown in April 2020 makes the case, and a good one, that the United States treats the teaching of critical thinking in schools as a, quote, luxury good, end quote. Generally, it's hard to come by and is often only taught in advanced placement classes where the majority of students come from wealthier white households. For a different perspective, Finland has made an effort to incorporate critical thinking into its curriculum to teach children how to spot misinformation and propaganda. Their idea, as is ours, is to help students understand the difference between fact and fiction, fact and opinion, and the importance of evidence-based journalism. But in Finland, media literacy is part of the national core curriculum starting in preschool. Said one teacher, quote, they really can't understand fake news or misinformation or anything if they don't understand the relationship between social media and journalism, end quote. Critical thinking is generally defined as, quote, a systematic cognitive strategy to examine, evaluate, and understand events. It involves problem solving and making decisions on the basis of sound reasoning and valid evidence, end quote. And that is from psychologist David Levy of Pepperdine University. I agree with the idea that critical thinking is more of an approach, an attitude about how to best understand the world around us, and in a more practical sense, to solve problems in a logical way. According to a paper I mentioned in a previous post titled Fighting Truthiness with Critical Thinking by psychologist Patrick Mattimore, people who routinely practice critical thinking have the following attributes about how to approach problem solving. They typically question assumptions, try to discern hidden biases, avoid overgeneralizations, develop a tolerance for ambiguity, and explore alternative perspectives. To put these attitudes into practice, you do have to engage in laser-like focus because to critically assess and analyze a problem, you have to separate the wheat from the chaff or separate all of the extraneous material from the real issue at hand. And it can take intense focus, patience, and time, 
which according to recent studies, fewer students have today because of the impact of computers, the internet, and social media. Thinking and solving problems using this process allows you, for example, to evaluate someone's statement or argument for its factual basis and uncover any fallacies, uh, which are the use of invalid or faulty reasoning, that underlie the argument and thus make it invalid. Certainly, humans' use of fallacies has been a mainstay of arguments since the first grunts were uttered many millennia ago. In fact, Aristotle analyzed 13 fallacies in writings published in 350 BCE. And if you're looking for a philosophical explanation of fallacies, you might skim his treatise. Speaking of fallacies, the use of one in particular seems to predominate in today's online discourse. If you can call what happens on Twitter, for example, discourse. And that is the massive confusion between cause and correlation. Here's basic information on the difference and profound effect of, use, of misusing these terms. Quote, asserting that when two things happen together, and especially when one occurs just before the other, that one thing causes the other. Without one or more without other more direct evidence proving causation, this assumption is just not justified. Both events could be caused by something else. Example, rain and lightning go together, but neither causes the other. Here is that fallacy in action right after the unfortunate death of Lisa Marie Presley this week. And uh, it was, I'm posting a tweet from Travis Tritt, and he has a picture of the late Lisa Marie Presley, and he says, this is unbelievably sad. How many more of these premature deaths have to happen before people start to question what the cause is? And he cites Fox News. And uh, I did not go to that link, but um, I believe he is equating of somehow the vaccine with Lisa Marie Presley's sudden death. But obviously there is a lot we don't know here. But no one pontificating on Twitter bothered to ask, did Ms. Presley even get a COVID vaccine? What were the other factors that could have caused her cardiac arrest? Apparently, she did not have a heart attack or heart failure, which are three different heart problems, and these Twitter threads use those terms interchangeably. Even if she were COVID vaccinated, there is no evidence there is a causation or even a correlation between the vaccine and her death from cardiac arrest. And why is this death necessarily premature? My father died at the age of 54 from a heart attack in 1975. Asking these basic questions first, rather than believing what you read, particularly on social media, is one way to start the critical thinking process. Here's another tweet that's stuffed with the causation versus correlation fallacy. It's by someone who calls himself Dr. Bert Sampson. 
Dems can't continue to suppress the truth. If all of the sudden death is caused by myocarditis from getting vaxxed, how can we ever just let Pfizer and Moderna off the hook? And then a few of his other hashtags are Fauci files, Fauci lied, millions died, and Nuremberg too. Um, and he has a picture here of a, a 32-year-old actress and model who died of sudden illness. Uh, by the way, this Dr. Bert Sampson, the author of this tweet, claims to be a doctor of sociology and feminist studies. If you thoroughly evaluate your sources of evidence, which is part of the critical thinking process, this guy would be eliminated immediately. Um, sociology and feminist studies is not a particularly good background to evaluate virology data, I believe. If you are even remotely aware of the critical thinking approach to understanding and evaluating information, and you apply its principles when you read the news or talk with a friend even, you won't fall for this or any other mistakes in reasoning. How can we in individually or as a country choose the best changes in law and policy to make and the correct or best process to make those changes if we don't question underlying assumptions, explore and include diverse perspectives, avoid generalities, ensure sound reasoning? We can't, and that's why we need intensive classes and critical thinking for all public school students in all 50 states. Do we need separate critical thinking classes in our K-12 curriculum? How do you engage in crit critical thinking, or do you? Please share your thoughts in the comment section below. I'd love to hear them. As always, I appreciate your interest and thoughtful ideas that make our crime and punishment community a welcoming space to visit and chat. There's no time like the present to become a free or paid subscriber, and there's no time like the new year to upgrade your free subscription to paid. It's easy and will allow me to continue to expand crime and punishment. Thanks in advance for your support. Remember, Crime and Punishment, Why the Poor Stay Poor in America is a reader-supported publication. To receive new posts and support my work, consider becoming a free or paid subscriber. As always, thank you for listening and reading. I'll see you next time.